Turn with me in your copy of God's Word this morning to Matthew chapter 17. Matthew chapter 17. This will be our final message in Matthew for the season as we enter into a time of Advent next Sunday, but we'll close out our time in Matthew 17 this morning as we look at Matthew 17 verses 22 to to 27. As you as you find your place there, I would just tell you last year I kind of, I don't know, turned over a new leaf maybe is what you say. I don't know what the right word is or, or just woke up on the side of craziness one morning and decided to start mountain biking. And, uh, you know, I've been doing that for a little over a year. Well, last year when I started mountain biking, the guys that I started going with were gracious enough to take it easy on me. And so they avoided going on difficult trails because at that time, the greatest challenge and achievement I had, the challenge was not falling off my bike. The achievement was getting out of the parking lot, uh, still on two wheels. And uh, it, was a, it was a learning time for me. And they were gracious. There's a, a trail out at PC Park called High Rollers. Some of you have been down this trail. You know it's very steep and has a lot of, um, a lot of challenges on it. They were gracious enough last year to not take me down that trail uh, because they knew what would happen. It wasn't based at all, that decision, it wasn't based at all on their ability, right? They certainly could go down that trail. They had no problems with it. I've seen them do it. I've heard them talk about it. It had everything to do with my ability or lack thereof. So they were being gracious. Kind of their, their mindset was, let's avoid high roller lest Todd tumble, right? They knew what would happen. My handlebars would be left behind and I would be flying if we went down that. Well, today's passage as we turn to Matthew 17 gives us a similar understanding in the life of Christ and how we live out our own lives lest we cause others to stumble. We have to consider where other people are in their walk of the Lord, where they are and what is best for them, living in light of the needs of the neighbors around us. And so, I want to look at that this morning from Matthew 17. Let's read the the word of the Lord this morning, beginning in verse 22. As they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. And they were greatly distressed. When they came to Capernaum, The collectors of the two drachma tax went up to Peter and said, Does your teacher not pay the tax? He said, Yes. And when he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first, saying, What do you think, Simon? From whom do kings of the earth take toll or tax? From their sons or from others? And when he said from others, Jesus said to him, Then the sons are free. However, not to give offense to them, go to the sea and cast a hook and take the first fish that comes up. And when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. In verses 22 to 23, we we find Jesus doing what he had done previously. The second time he predicts his death 
and then his resurrection. He tells the disciples what, what awaits his impending suffering and, and death. And some scholars see a little difference here when, when Jesus says this and, and when he says the Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. They understand and read that as, as giving a hint at the betrayal that would come. There was no hint of betrayal previously when Jesus warned them of his death and and resurrection. But here he says the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. He's continuing, like we said previously, he's continuing to prepare the disciples for what's to come. He knows what awaits and he's trying to get them ready for that. He has a clear knowledge of his purpose. He has a clear knowledge of what awaits and the, the Father's plan. And he's telling the disciples here. Now, it is interesting here to to just consider their response. Do you remember the response just a few chapters before? Peter says, no, 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 no. That'll never happen, right? That'll never happen. And then we had that, and we understand Peter's probably the spokesperson for the disciples in that moment. Well, here we read that the disciples were greatly distressed. They're starting to understand, they're starting to get a picture of what awaits, of what's coming, that that Jesus is going to die. He is going to be betrayed. He's going to be delivered into the hands of men. As he said previously, he is going to suffer. And when they hear this, he does tell them, and he'll be raised on the third day, but they're greatly distressed. They're they're focused on the suffering, the the delivering into the hands of men, the, the death of their Lord. They don't perhaps here yet, that he will raise from the, rise from the grave, that he will be raised on the third day. They're focused on the bad side, and they, they kind of miss the good side, perhaps. But I want to just stop here for just a minute, and I want us to think about their response. They were greatly distressed. And we've, we've heard this, this prediction from the Lord twice now, and I think there's a question that you need to ask, especially today, if you're here, you're, un, you're an unbeliever, is why did Jesus come to die? Why is this necessary? Why does he come before them and he sits down and he tells them the Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of man. They will kill him and he will be raised on the third day. Why is that important? Why is it that they respond with distress? And how do you respond? What is your response to that? When you, when you hear that statement, when you hear that, that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came, that he would suffer at the hands of men, that he would be betrayed, when you read all of this in the Gospels, in the Scriptures, then you hear that he dies on the cross, that he's buried in a grave, and that he rises from the grave, what is your response? In this moment, when, when Christ tells them this, they are greatly distressed, For for many of us gathered today, your response might be one of of amazement. That you're amazed that the very Son of God would come and He would suffer and He would die on your behalf. And that you would be so amazed that you would step back and you would just sing, I am a debtor to mercy alone. A debtor to mercy alone. God's great mercy displayed for me through Christ. His great love and His grace displayed. Or perhaps it humbles you. Perhaps believers gather today and you're just humbled by the very fact that the the Son of God would come, live as a man, live a perfect life, and die on the cross, not for His own sins, 
but on behalf of us for our sins, taking the full wrath of God the Father on our behalf. You stand humbled today at that thought. Perhaps as Matt led us in the time of prayer, perhaps your response is one of thanksgiving, that you simply step back and you just say thank you. Thank you. I, I know not what else to say. Thank you. Thank you for your great mercy. But there's some here who perhaps you would gather and your response is not one of distress. It's not one of amazement or humility or, or thanksgiving. Maybe, maybe your response is just indifference. It's just indifference. You, you've come and maybe this is your first Sunday in a church in a while, maybe the first time ever, or maybe you come week in and week out and you hear the word taught in small groups, you hear it preached from the pulpit, and you're just indifferent. You've really failed to consider the deep significance of the life of Jesus Christ, of the death of Jesus Christ, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You've never considered it, and you're just indifferent to it. So you read that and you keep going. Maybe your response is you just sit in ignorance, unaware of your need for Christ, unaware that the very coming of Christ is because there is nothing that you can do to satisfy the wrath of a holy God because you are a sinner and you stand as a sinner before Him, fully deserving judgment and punishment. But you've never considered that. You're just unaware that you need Christ. It's not that something you just, well, I'm going to just add this religious thing to my life. I'm just going to become a better person. No, you need Christ. So maybe your response is just kind of just sitting there in ignorance. Maybe you're just flat out unresponsive. You hear it. You know it. You've heard the gospel message. You could even speak it. You could even recite it. You could even tell someone if they said, what is the gospel? You say, oh, the gospel is this, and you lay it out. But you have a callous heart, a heart of stone, perhaps hardened by religiosity, hardened by just Christian terms, just spoken to you that you, you just know, and you go through the routine, and you're just religious. I would encourage you, I would make the appeal, I would, I would beg of you this morning. If you are one of those last three, if you're an unbeliever and you come in and you just scroll right over these verses, I would appeal that you would think deeply and, and seriously about the meaning of this. Why did Jesus Christ come? What is the significance that the very Son of God came? He, he said in, in Mark 10, 45, he said, I did not come, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The express purpose for Christ's coming was to die on the cross for our sins, that we might be restored in our relationship to God. You need to consider that. You need to think about that this morning. The disciples heard and they were distressed because they were following Christ and the, the idea that the Messiah, the anointed one, the promised one, would suffer and die caused great distress. We look back 
with the blessing, the privilege of being able to look back and know that he was raised from the grave three days later. And we look back with rejoicing and thanksgiving, humility. Would you look back and consider that unbeliever? Consider what Christ did on your behalf. When we get into verses 24 to 27, we come to a moment in the life of Christ where I think the, the, maybe the main question for this paragraph is this, is should the Son of God pay tax in the Father's house? Should the Son of God pay tax, pay a tax to the Father's house? This passage here, verses 24 to 27, is found only in Matthew. A lot of the texts that we go through as we go through the Gospels, they, they'll have a parallel passage in one of the other Gospels, not, but not this one. This is only found in Matthew. We don't know exactly why that is, but I would just remind you, who was Matthew when Christ called him? He was a tax collector, right? He was a tax collector. And so this moment when, when Matthew sees Christ's demeanor and he sees what he teaches and he hears what he tells Peter, he sees what he does. It had to have made an impact on Matthew. He knew what it was like. He knew what it felt like as a tax collector to appeal and, and to ask people for the tax, to demand for the tax. He knew the people's response. He knew their disdain. He knew his own reputation as a tax collector, what that would have been. And so now these tax collectors come and they, they make this appeal to Peter and they ask Peter this question, does your master not pay the tax? And, and Peter says, yes, he does. And then he hears Jesus' interaction with Peter and sees what, Peter, what, what Jesus does. It had to have made an impression upon Matthew, the former tax collector, seeing the posture of the Lord towards these collectors. The, the two drachma tax there refers to Exodus 30, 11 to 16. You can step back and, and read that, but that's the, that's the temple tax. And what that is, is it's a tax that's equivalent to about two days' wages. And it was paid by anyone 20 years and over when you turn 20. And it was for the service, the maintenance of the temple. It was specifically to be paid at the time of, of the census. And, and by the time when, you know, through uh, the history of the Jews, by the time uh, Jesus and, and he's alive here in the Gospels, what it, what it had it turned into was where the tax was paid one time, as instructed, and then some chose to pay it yearly and some others didn't. It was completely voluntary once you paid the first required payment of it. And so beyond that, it was voluntary. And so some chose to pay it, some didn't. An example of that we know from the, the Qumran community, those who, who wrote and recorded the Dead Sea Scrolls, right? The ones who, the scribes of the Qumran community, they chose not to pay it yearly. They chose to pay it the one time and then not to continue paying it. And that was their freedom to do it. And this was a, a Jewish law here. This is not an issue of a Roman tax. It's a Jewish tax. It's not something from the state coming in, the Roman, the Romans saying, we are taxing you. So this isn't necessarily an issue that we consider. Does this provide instruction for us paying taxes to the state? We'll have that passage in a, in a few, uh, few chapters from now in Matthew. But this is a Jewish tax that's levied and, and brought before the people. Now, this background, I think, is important for two reasons. When we think about what's going on here, there's two reasons this is important. First is it tells us that this is not an issue of living as a law-abiding citizen. It's not an issue of living as a law-abiding citizen here. This is not a civil issue when we think about this tax. The second one 
Or the second reason this is important is that this is not a requirement of the Jewish law. Okay? Once it's been paid, it is not then a requirement every time to pay it. So when the people come and they ask Jesus, this is not a sin issue. That's the importance here. It's not a sin issue. It's not as though Jesus is caught and goes, oh, wow, uh, I've got to pay this or I'm going to be sinning. That's, that's not the issue here. He had the freedom to pay it or not to pay it at this point. He had paid it. Peter says, yes, right? And then in this moment, he has the freedom. Do I, do I want to pay it or do I not? It's voluntary at this point, okay? And so we see that, and that's important as we think through the issue and what's going on here. In verse 25, then Peter asks an important question, right? He, or not Peter, I'm sorry. Jesus asks an important question of Peter. And the question is this, is from whom do kings of the earth take toll or tax from their sons or from others now some might look at this and go oh well he's talking about do they do they charge citizens or foreigners kind of the civil realm well i don't i don't think this is what we see here if you just read it he's not talking about civil versus foreigners those who are are citizens versus those who are strangers and coming in it's not an issue of do we tax civilly instead he's asking do kings tax their sons who do they tax? And Peter's reply is, well, no, they, they tax others, right? They, they tax others. And Jesus says, that's right. And the point he makes here is important. He says, if that's the case, then sons are free. Sons are free. His point is the tax is for the father's house. Who is Jesus? He's the son. He's the son of God. He is not then required to pay a tax in the Father's house. What happened in Matthew 17, the beginning of Matthew 17? What event? It's an important event we just looked at. Pastor Mike preached on it. It was a transfiguration, right? What's declared of Jesus at the transfiguration in verse 5? This is my Son in whom I'm well pleased, right? This is my son. He is the son of God who is certainly exempt from this temple tax to the father. He was free not to pay it if he didn't want to. We don't need to miss the importance of this statement here, of what Jesus is pointing out. There is a, a Christological nature of the teaching here. There, there is a, a very important point here that is a reminder of who Christ is. We're reminded of the deity of Christ. You see, that the basis for why Jesus is not required to pay is greater than just mere preference for him. It's not just a, a preference. The basis for why Jesus doesn't have to pay is that he is the very Son of God. He is the Son. The eternally existent, glorious Son of God who came in the flesh and lived among us, dwelt among us in humble obedience to the Father. I just remember Philippians 2.6 when I was thinking about that, that, the statement that Paul makes there about Christ, that he was in the form of God, but he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, the great humility of Christ in coming to live among us. And so what we have here is his act is not an act to avoid sin in not paying the tax or paying it, but it's an act of love for neighbor in fulfillment of all righteousness. It's an act in which Christ shows a love for his neighbor. Why do we know this? Look at verse 27. Verse 27. He's stated the sons are free. 
However, not to give offense to them, go to the sea and cast a hook and take the fish, the first fish that comes up. When you open its mouth, you'll find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. Jesus was, was free of the requirement to pay a tax, but there was something else in play that would lead him to do it in this instance. What else was to play? Lest they stumble, lest we give offense to them. Right? Let's say they stumble. Jesus was concerned beyond himself. His concern was not just, well, what do I have the freedom to do? What can I do? What can I choose not to do? No, his concern was that they might not stumble. The, the word here is used of, 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 of stumbling spiritually. Every time this word is used, it's used always in the context of one stumbling spiritually. And so when it says not to give offense to them, it's the idea of causing them to stumble. So Jesus in this moment thought about the position the tax collectors be in. He thought about what was going on. He thought about the needs of those around him. And he, he knew, he said, lest we give offense to them, go and let's pay it. Go and he, casts, he gives him the instruction to go and cast a hook, right? Not a net, but a hook. Take the first fish that comes up, open his mouth. There's a shekel in there. Go pay that for both you and for me. What Jesus understood and demonstrated is that there is a time to be willing to offend others. We've seen that previously. And a time in which we should avoid offending others. And just think about the life of Christ. We, we see that in his life. There's a time to offend and a time not to offend. I'll give you some instances, but I want you to think about how do we know this? How do we know when to offend and when not to offend, right? Well, I would say first, we, we need to ask, is the law of the Lord being broken or misapplied? Is God's law, God's word being broken? Is it being misapplied? The second, is the truth of the gospel at stake? Is the truth of the gospel at stake? Both of those are instances in which we should not worry about offending others. That's what we see in the life of Christ. You think about in Matthew 12, verses 33 to 37. He, he looks at the Pharisees. He's not worried about offending them. He looks at him and he says, you brood of vipers. I don't think he was going, oh, man, I, let me see. I'm not sure if this is going to be offensive. Let's just go out on a limb. I'm going to call you a brood of vipers. Oh, my bad. Did that offend you? No, he's not worried about offending them. He says, you brood of vipers. Why? Because they are speaking ungodly, unholy, sinful words. They were not giving glory to God. They were maligning the Lord and speaking ungodly words, revealing their heart. And so he looks at him and says, you brood of vipers. Or think about in Matthew 23, we haven't gotten there yet. But Matthew 23 is a, a chapter in which he speaks woe to the Pharisees. Again, he's not worried about offending them. Throughout Matthew 23, he calls them hypocrites over and over and over. These are the leaders, the leaders of the religious establishment. I mean, they're the ones that are the most respected. And he looks at him and he says, you hypocrites you hypocrites you hypocrites he's not worried about offending them but maybe the most relevant or pertinent passage is in verse uh, chapter 15 he's flipping my bible it's just one page back you go back to matthew 15 do you remember the instance where jesus confronts the pharisees there we covered it just recently and the problem here is that he addresses and he confronts the pharisees for allowing and leading out in the breaking of God's law according to their tradition. 
They had elevated tradition above God's word, above God's commandment. And he looks at them and he, he confronts them. And again, he says, you hypocrites. He says, your, your lips say one thing, but your heart is far from me. Heart, far from me. And so do you remember the disciples' response? They're worried about this, right? The disciples come to him and they go, um, do you not know the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? And Jesus didn't go, oh my goodness, I didn't realize it. No. Jesus responds by saying, every plant that my father has not planted will be rooted up. They are blind guides. Right? He's ready. He's willing to offend them in those moments. Why? Because the word of God was being broken. It was being misapplied. The gospel was at stake. That's not the issue in Matthew 17, though. It's not a gospel issue. It's not an issue of the word of God being violated or broken. Instead, it's an issue where there was freedom. There was freedom. And in that moment, what was it that Christ did? Christ considered the good of those around him. Lest we offend them, he says. Lest we offend them. It's a lesson that we need to learn. That there are times in our life where we need to be ready to set aside our personal freedom so that we might not be a stumbling block to those around us. It's a lesson, it's an example out of the life of Christ that is on display in kind of a case study of what Paul teaches in 1 Corinthians 8-10. through I want to just ask you to turn over there. 1 Corinthians 8-10. through You might want to leave your finger in Matthew 18, but we're going to camp out for a little bit in Matthew 8, or 1 Corinthians 8 through 10. 1 Corinthians is on deeper into the New Testament. 1 Corinthians, Paul writes this letter to the church as you're, as you're turning there. He writes this letter to a church that is in battle with sin, a church that's struggling with sin, that all kinds of issues. It's kind of one of those, you, you hear this said often, you know, why if you are discouraged about what's going on in your church, read the letter to the Corinthian church, right? And that'll make you more encouraged, right? It's a letter you read the Corinthians and, and you wonder why anybody would name their church after Corinth, right? No, nothing personal against our brothers at Corinth Baptist, but why would you do that, right? Um, so you read this letter and you see this, but throughout, Paul refers to them as brothers, Paul refers to them endearingly and encourages them and instructs them and rebukes them. When he gets to, to chapter 8, we see 8 through 10 is this kind of long writing on the right exercise of what we would call Christian freedom. The freedom that we have in Christ. The freedom that we're, we're not confined. There are things that we have that we can, we can make decisions on convictionally as how we live out our life for Christ. And so starting in verse eight or chapter 8 of 1 Corinthians, I'm just going to kind of hit some high points to help you see this, and then we'll bring it all together at the end. But in 1 Corinthians 8, he begins by addressing the issue of, of whether or not the believers should eat food that was possibly set aside for idols and brought before them. They may not know it was. They're, they're not sure. And so in verses 1 through 8 of chapter 8, he addresses the believer's knowledge that idols are false and vain and something offered to them is really meaningless. He says, listen, you know this, right? You know that, that idolatry is wrong. You know it's sinful. You know that idols are fake. They're not real gods. And so if you offer food to them, it's just a waste of time and it's just ridiculous. You know that. 
right? But then he, he warns them, though. He says, listen, you may know that, but don't let that knowledge well up within you as pride. Don't become arrogant about that knowledge. Just because you know it, you need to be careful with that knowledge. It's one thing to know something. It's one thing to know and to have right theology. It's one thing to know that you have freedom in Christ. It's another thing to live in that freedom while exhibiting a God-glorifying love towards those around you. And so Paul begins by warning them. In, in verse 9 of chapter 8, 1 Corinthians 8, 9, he says, But take care that this right of yours, the right to eat whatever you want to, right? Take care this right does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak, to those around you who are weak. In verse 12 of chapter 8, Paul gives somewhat of a, he, he provides a, a spiritual weight, a heaviness to this issue. That it's not just, well, I'm sorry I offended you, or, well, I'm sorry, I'm just going to go ahead and do that. There's some weight to this issue when we think about Christian freedom and our love for our brothers. The weight is this in verse 12. He says, thus sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against God. It may not have been a sin to eat or not to eat in that instance, but if you carry out your freedom in a way that it causes your brother to stumble and it harms their relationship with the Lord, then you have sinned against God. In, in chapter 9, Paul then gives an example of the right exercise of Christian freedom in his own life. He gives an example. He brings his own life into play and starts explaining to them an instance where, where he expresses his freedoms and rights. And he says, are, are, are we under any greater restrictions as an apostle? No. We have, we have the, the freedom to eat and to drink. We have the freedom to take a wife. We have the freedom to earn a living from gospel ministry. And he goes through all this in, in chapter 9. When we get down to 9.12, we start kind of getting a sense of Paul's heart of why he is telling them this and the point he's making. So he had previously addressed how they live out their Christian freedom in relation to what they eat or what they don't eat. In chapter 9, he says, listen, I have all these rights as an apostle. I could carry out my ministry in this way. I could do this or not do this. I have, I'm free to do it. But then we get to verse 12 of chapter 9. He says, nevertheless, we have not made use of this right but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. And then in verse 19, we hear a similar statement. He says, For though I am free from all, I've made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. What is his desire? It's the gospel. His longing is to see people come to trust Christ. Verse 22 to 23 of chapter 9 is, is perhaps a, a great summary. He says, to the weak I become weak. Why? That I might win the weak. I've become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. Why do you do this, Paul? He says, I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in its blessings. Paul had a singular focus, the gospel. He never made a decision related to his Christian freedom and living out of his walk of the Lord that sacrificed the gospel. He never did something and just said, you know, I'm not worried. I'm, I'm just going to, you know, appease them and be like them and, and do things with them to make them happy. And, and I'm not really worried about the gospel. As a matter of fact, I'm going to kind of compromise the gospel a little bit to make them feel better. No, Paul doesn't do that. We don't see Christ doing that. When, when, 
when Christ is bold, he's bold. When the gospel's at stake, when the truth of God's word is at stake, he's bold. He offends. We see the same thing. Paul is bold for the Lord. He's bold in the gospel. He proclaims the gospel. He's not ready or he's not, he's not worried, I should say, about someone getting upset and be offended by the gospel. He allows the gospel to offend. He never sacrifices the gospel. But when he thinks about this freedom, and he thinks about living out his own life, he's willing to lay down his own rights for the sake of the gospel. If it means someone understanding Christ and it means someone trusting Christ, he's willing to lay down his rights. I want you to see this. I want you to see how Paul works out his Christian freedom. He doesn't, he doesn't approach and use his freedom to, to, to just live however he wants. Instead, he uses his freedom to deny himself the rightful privilege and blessings he might have. You see that? He uses his freedom to deny himself. Why? For the sake of the gospel. For the sake of the glory of God. He understood that just because he could do something didn't mean he should do something. Paul understood that can does not always mean ought. Just because I can do something doesn't mean I should do something. That's a statement that we could go into a lot for ethics and what's going on in our day. Just because we can do something, we have the ability to do something, does not mean we should do something. Right? Not to stop there, it's going to chase a big rabbit. But here, Paul understands that. In the life of Christ, he understood that. He didn't have to pay the tax, but he understood there was more at play than just whether he could volunteer to pay the tax or not, whether he's the son and free or whether he should pay the tax. That other thing in play was the good of those around him. The other thing in play for Paul's ministry was the good of those around him. Does he cash in on every right he has? No. Why? Because he is doing what it takes to make sure the gospel is advanced. That people see Christ and trust Christ. So he comes into chapter 10. And in chapter 10 of 1 Corinthians, it's interesting. We start in verse, chapter 8 when this warning, or not this warning, this, this conversation about the knowledge of idolatry and whether idolatry is right or wrong, right? And, and food and all this stuff. And he says, hey, you have the knowledge well, chapter 10, he then warns those, those who have a knowledge, right, of not falling into idolatry, how vain it is to, to eat meat, the sacrifice to an idol. Why would we do that? He comes in and then he warns them, now you don't fall into idolatry. Don't fall. Don't, don't go there. Like, you have that knowledge that could get, you get really puffed up with. Now be careful because you could find yourself right there. Don't fall in. So idolatry, now how does he warn them? How does he warn them here? He warns them by pointing them back to the accounts in God's word. He warns them by reminding them of the testimony of God's work among God's people. Right. So in verse 11, he says that these things were written down for our instruction. The things recorded in scripture according to Paul in chapter 10 verse 6 took place as an example for us. Right? He's pointing them back to God's word. So don't be like them. You have testimony of what happened to God's people when they fell to temptation. They pursued ungodliness. They lived in sin. Don't be like them. These things are recorded in Scripture that we might benefit from them. They're for our instruction. They're an example to us. Look at God's word, Paul's saying. 
verse 23 to 24, we meditated on that and thought about it and read it before the sermon. A foundational principle when we think about this. All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. And then what does he say? Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. The good of his neighbor. At the end of chapter 10, Paul really gives us a a conclusion in verse 31. So whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. Just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. See, the, the first concluding statement is do everything for God's glory. And then after that, the next concluding statement is love your neighbor by living for their good. He says, give no offense to Jews, to Greeks, or to the church. Give no offense, but live in a way that's not in your own advantage, but that many might be saved. When we think about this idea, I, I, think, I think that the exercise, the right exercise of Christian freedom is one of the most important issues for the church. That we need to rightly live out our lives in a way that is not bound up by legalism, trying to earn merit, justify ourselves by the way we live, by a big list of do's and don'ts. But it's also not lived in a way that we just flippantly live and say, hey, I'm forgiven and free. I don't have to worry about it. With no regard to how it impacts the people around us, how it impacts the the people in the bedroom down the hall, the young believers, the children who are watching your every life, every move. How no regard to how it impacts your neighbors down the street or your coworkers, those who sit a few rows back in a desk in your classroom. We need to think about this. And I, I want to just leave you with, with this. And they're going to put a, a graphic up on the screen for you. I, I want to leave you with this kind of the way. Sometimes it helps me to draw things out. And so when I was going through 1 Corinthians in, in, in a journal, I just drew this out. And, and I think it's three parameters, three boundaries, when we think about living out Christian freedom that we see that Paul gives us in 1 Corinthians 10. And so I want to just show you first, what we see first is that there is a, an importance, this first side of living according to God's Word. In verses 1 to 22, Paul directs them back to God's Word, that we are to live obediently to God's word. That's what, that's what we learn on that first one, is that we are to live obediently to God's word. You can go ahead and flip the next one, okay? And so what we see there is Paul is saying, look, here's an example. Here's for your instruction to help you walk in righteousness, right? Why do we have the word of God? It's to equip us, right? To prepare us for every good work. We have been given the word of God for our instruction, and we are to live accordingly, Right? So the first side is, is God's word. The second thing we see in 1 Corinthians 10, 23 to 30 is that we're to live for the good of our neighbors. We're to live according to the good of our neighbors. What is beneficial to them? What's going to spur them on in the Lord? Right? What, do we, what do we think about? We are to, to live lovingly for their good. 
We're to consider what is, what is good for them. In this instance, if I do this, I might be free to do that, but they don't know what I'm operating on. They may not have a full understanding of that. And so they may go, oh, well, okay. And it could cause them to stumble. If something's going to cause them to stumble, then why would I do that? I have a concern. I need to have a concern for my neighbor's good. And the final parameter we see, the final side that we see from 1 Corinthians 10 is God's glory. God's glory in, in chapter 10, verse 31. We're told to do all things for the glory of God. And so we should constantly be living zealously for God's glory. I think these are the three sides that fence in our Christian freedom. That the way we live out our freedom in Christ should be exercised within these bounds. If anything violates one of these, then I stop, I pull back, I don't do it. If something, if I'm, I'm doing something and it's, it's contrary to the truth of God's word, then I stop. I'm not going to do it. I step back. Why? Because that's how I glorify God, and it's also for the good of my neighbor. If I'm, if I'm living and say, you know what, I'm not breaking God's word by doing this. It's not, it's not anything, you know, it's not any problem with the word of the Lord, and I'm glorifying God in my own life by doing it, but yet it's detrimental to my neighbor's good, then I don't do it. Why? Because I'm thinking of the interest of others above my own. Or in the midst of all of this, if it brings me glory, if it puffs up my name, it's not exalting the Lord, I don't do it. These bounds are how we figure out and how we live out our life of Christian freedom. God's glory is to always be the primary concern in all things above our own. We see this in Paul's life. That's what we see from 1 Corinthians 1, 8 through 10. Chapter 8, chapter 9 is really examples where he works this out. Chapter 10, he brings it all to a close. And we see this in chapter 10. It's an example of the life of Christ. He's living for the Father's glory. He's living obediently to the Lord, the Word of God. He's fulfilling all righteousness. But he looks, and in this instance, however, lest we offend them. You go throw a hook in the ocean, reel up a fish, and in it you're going to find a shekel. And I want you to take that shekel, and I want you to pay it for you and I. And it's going to be double what's owed. So you go ahead and do that. Because he's considering those around him. I want to close by just giving you Four things, very quickly, that would answer this question. How do we cultivate an attitude of neighbor-loving Christian freedom as exhibited by Christ in Matthew 17 and Paul in 1 Corinthians 10? How do we cultivate that attitude? So I think that's the, kind of the crux of the matter. It's one thing to see the example of Christ. It's one thing to hear the example and the admonition, the teaching of Paul. We see this in Scripture. We know we're instructed from Old Testament and New Testament to love our neighbors. We've seen the, and heard the parable of the Good Samaritan and the demonstration of love and mercy there. But we don't want to just know it, right? We want to live that way. How do we cultivate that in our lives? Here's the first thing. Is consistently focus on the needs of others above your own. Consistently focus on the needs of others above your own. Philippians 2, 3, and 4 is your reference there. Consistently focus on what others around you need. Not just on what you want, 
what's good for you in the moment, but what do the people around you need? What's going to be best for them in their relationship with the Lord or lack thereof? How are you going to most glorify God in this relationship? How is living out my life here going to be for the sake of the gospel and not for the sake of my own desires and wants and freedoms, right? The second thing I would say is this. Spend meaningful time with people to learn their temptations and struggles. Spend meaningful time with people to learn where their temptations and struggles are. If I don't spend meaningful time with people, I don't know where they're struggling, right? But when I spend meaningful time and have deep conversations with people beyond, hey, how are you doing? Good. All right, good. Good to see you. See you later. When I go beyond that, and I live life with them. Maybe I'm in a small group with them. I'm, I'm praying with them, meeting together with prayer. Maybe I'm having coffee with them or just talking to them or out in the foyer. I, I, I sit and say, hey, how are you doing? What's going on in your life? How can I pray for you? And I get past that surface level, right? Then I learn what they're struggling with. I learn perhaps where their temptations are. And that helps inform me how I live in a way that is good for them, in a way that it could cause them to struggle and to stumble. Otherwise, you're walking around, you don't know what other people struggle with. Never assume, never assume that someone doesn't struggle with something. You need to think about where people are, what they could struggle with. Be aware of that and how you live out your life in Christ. The third thing is let your love be genuine. Let your love be genuine. Paul makes that appeal in Romans 12, 9. Let your love be genuine. Don't just say, yeah, I love you, and now I'm going to live however I want to in total disregard of how I can help you and spur you on and encourage you and build you up in Christ. No, let your love be genuine. Genuine love is actually concerned about others and what they need. And then finally, love your neighbor as yourself. Love your neighbor as yourself. We see it, I mean, we've read it time and time again. Jesus says it in Matthew twenty-two thirty-nine. That's the second greatest commandment, he says, to love your neighbor as yourself. The back end of the Ten Commandments are summarized by that. How do we love others? We're commanded to love our neighbors ourselves in the Old Testament. Do we do it? Are we genuinely concerned about the good of our neighbors? If we are, it should work its way out and be evident in the way we live, the way we interact with them, the decisions we make, living out our freedom in Christ. Let's pray together. God, we bow and we give you thanks for your word. God, the instruction that it provides to us, the examples that we read of and learn from. And God, we thank you for the freedom that we have in Christ as believers. That God, you have saved us, you have freed us from the bondage of sin, you've, you've freed us to not try to walk in legalism and, and try to achieve anything by works of the law, but you've Set us free and we can live in you according to your grace. Not bound up by trying to earn anything or trying to justify ourselves by our own works. So God, we thank you for that. 
But God, our prayer in the midst of that is that you would guard us against any pride. God, let us not become puffed up with the knowledge we have of our freedom in you. And God, I pray that you would guard us from selfishness, that we wouldn't just live according to what we want and according to our rights and our freedoms, but Lord, we would live for the sake of the gospel, the glory of your great name. So God, I pray that as we live out our lives in you and for your glory, God, I pray that we would have a steadfast focus on the gospel that we would spur one another on as believers to love and good deeds, to faithfulness to you, to pursue you. And that, God, our relationship with unbelievers would cause them to see your glory and to understand their need for you and to, to, to see your great love and grace displayed on the cross. And so, God, we pray that our lives we live for the sake of the gospel. And God, I just close by asking God for you to work in the lives of unbelievers here today. God, would you cause them to think deeply, seriously about you, their need for you, about your love and your grace displayed in sending your son, Jesus Christ, to live on this earth and to suffer and to die and to raise again that we might be saved. Lord, would you do a great work in their life, grant them faith to believe, Lord, we pray in the name of Christ. Amen.